the second half of it out uh, and to do something completely different for the second half. Now, the reason why this is interesting, uh, if you know my personality type, I am uh, a little bit of a structured and organized individual, um, <laughs> slightly. Uh, and I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit loves to torture me or to find out you know, where I need to be more flexible, but that apparently is going to happen for the second half of this service. And that's good and bad news. It's good that we're responsive to the Holy Spirit. It's bad because without my uh, notes and without knowing where I'm going, there is a slight potential for rabbit trails. Be aware that I'm on a time limit today and Carol needs to get out of here, so I need to actually finish on time. So, with that being said, I invite you to open to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. We're going to pick up, uh, pick up where we left off last week, starting uh, in verse 13. So, 1 John, chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, like I normally do, I'd like to just uh, bring up the main point from last week, which uh, I believe last week can be summarized just simply in this statement that religion equals do when Jesus equals done. In every other world religion, it doesn't matter uh, which one that you pick, if you pick any world religion, they all have you do stuff in order to be saved. In Christianity, Jesus already did what needed to happen for your salvation. And so in every other world religion, you need to, to do stuff, but Jesus equals done. So if you turn you in your Bibles uh, to 1 John chapter. Four, verse 13, we are going to kick this thing off. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The presence and activity of the Holy Spirit within believers is the evidence that we are abiding in God. So here's, here's the thing. Uh, we've covered this before, so I don't want to take too long on this point. Uh, a lot of the times we talk about being judgmental. I'm not allowed to judge you. You're not allowed to judge me. We all have to be together, and we need to be hippie love, sunshine, lollipops, right? We've, we've talked about that before. But Scripture actually says that we can hold each other accountable within Christianity. It says that uh, if you're an actual Christian, if you are a professing Christian and you love Jesus, then your actions... Uh, to bear a specific type of fruit. If I look at your life and that fruit is not there, uh, then it's evidence that you're not abiding within the will of God. And so, again, I'm not going to prolong this point because we talked about it at length in this series alone. Uh, John is very, very much uh, pushing this particular point that being a Christian actually equates to a changed heart. It actually equates to something changing in your life. That if you were in a state of sin before and you come to know Jesus, that state of sin shouldn't be attractive to you anymore. That state of sin, you shouldn't stay there, but rather Christian, uh, Christian lifestyle and behavior should drive you forward. Does that make sense? And so again, he, he says it here. He said it in the last couple of weeks as well, but he really... Uh, emphasizes this point by saying that we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit. He continues on in verse 14, and we have seen the father and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Uh, this is really interesting because John is an apostle of God and he actually had seen Jesus. Uh, he had been with Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. He'd eaten with Jesus. And a lot of times uh, we 
sort of go over, sort of skip over rather fast the humanity of what it would have been like to live with Christ. These apostles spent the best part of three and a quarter years with Jesus physically. Uh, I, I want to know what they did. Because uh, there's not three and a half years worth of content recorded in the Gospels. Jesus' every single uh, action isn't recorded in those Gospels. In fact, it says uh, at the end of one of the Gospels that if we were to record everything, uh, we would run out of book space about the Christ. And so we don't know some of the things that he did. So like, for instance, what happened every evening? So none, none of the evenings are recorded in the Gospels, right? Like it just says, this is what Jesus did during the day, uh, except for the Last Supper. It's the only evening that was recorded. So <coughs> did Jesus have a campfire? Did he go camping? Did he sit around? Sit around? Did they tell, uh, did they tell stories over the campfire? Um, in, in Jewish culture, telling stories is a, uh, really a, a huge part of their culture. And so did they sit around a campfire telling stories until the hours of the morning? Are there parables that only the disciples heard that they didn't write down because uh, they weren't given a sermon? When, uh, when people's <coughs> parents or family members get sick and they had to stay up late, did Jesus come up beside them and say, listen, brother, I know you're struggling? Uh, we, we know Jesus did stuff like that. Peter's mother-in-law uh, was dying, and it so affected him that Jesus went and healed her. And so we know that Jesus had that personal relationship with his disciples, but we skip over that human part of Jesus. I mean, today, would Jesus come into my living room, sit down, and watch a game with me? Like, you see, he laughs. But here's, here's why this is important. So often we overemphasize the spiritual at the neglect of the human. And what Jesus did was he built relationships with people. He didn't walk in and just hit people over the head with scripture. He did that occasionally, don't get me wrong. Like when Jesus went into the temple, he flipped over the tables and he was like, you guys don't even read your Bible, what are you doing? Like there were times when he did that. But there are times when he was incredibly human and he sat down and just was with people. Relational with people. Peter might have disagreed that healing his mother-in-law was a blessing, but... I'm not sure what his mother-in-law was like. Mine's wonderful in case she's watching. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We have seen Christ. After Jesus rose from the dead, uh, he was with his disciples. Now, uh, ten of the disciples were there. Thomas was not. Uh, you, might have, you might know the story from Scripture doubting Thomas. Thomas wasn't there the first time that Jesus appeared. Uh, the disciples were like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Um, and Mary comes in. She's like, Jesus has risen. Okay, so I've got a, I've got a joke. It's a bad joke. Do you mind if I tell it? Okay, good. So, uh, so Mary gets to the tomb, and Jesus is gone. And she, uh, she comes back to the disciples and tells Peter, he's gone. And Peter says, well, maybe, maybe he's up. And Mary says, what's up, Jesus? And Jesus walks through the door and says, nothing, what's up with you? <laughs> some work, some don't. All right. Jesus rose from the dead, was standing in the presence of the disciples. And Thomas, who hadn't yet seen him, said, I'm not going to believe that he's risen until I've touched the holes in his palms and put my hand where the spear went through in his side. 
I, I just can't, I don't believe it. And then Jesus appeared in his midst and said, Thomas, put your hand here in, in my palm. Put your hand here in my side, in my side. I am the Christ. And Thomas falls down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said it would have been better for those who see, uh, have not seen and believe than those who see and believe. And so interestingly for us, John was one of the hand-picked witnesses. And by extension and through faith, all of us can testify to the same truth that John is able to testify to in Scripture. John was able to physically touch the resurrected Christ, which none of us have been able to do. But each one of us, in our own way, has experienced the resurrection for ourselves in our hearts. And it is that experience of the resurrection that then allows us to testify to the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is good. Do you know how lucky you are? In no other religion have you been able to see the Messiah or the Savior of the world. In no other religion did you have that assurance and have had your heart changed to the point where you know it as experiential. And yet us as Christians, through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, are able to experience the resurrected Christ in our lives. By extension, through faith, all subsequent believers testify to the same truths. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Before I get going on this one, I want to just back up to verse 14, something I didn't mention. When John said that Jesus is the Savior of the world, there's only two times in all of John's writing that he uses the word Savior. And that was one of them. The other is in, I think, John chapter 4. The word savior was really important to Jewish writings. The word Messiah was very important to Jewish writings. John was primarily, in all of his writings, writing to Jews. And so he used the word sparingly. And in this particular verse that we just read, he used it, that Jesus was sent from the Father to be the savior of the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, like I said, the back end of my sermon went off the rails this morning. And I got fixated on this idea of God abiding. And I don't know why, but for some reason, this seemed to be incredibly important to me. Now, I know some of you are A-type personalities, and I'm going to be using a lot of scriptural references here. So, uh, Emma, can I borrow you? I've got some notes here. scripture reference so that you can actually listen and enjoy at the same time. Uh, I've written down every scripture reference that I'm about to use uh, and the reason why I'm using it so that you can follow along and not have to worry. So, as I was sitting in my office this morning, this idea of God abiding 
started to overtake all of my thoughts. What does it mean that God is abiding? And I thought there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Very often what, when we talk about God being in the presence of his people, we talk it, uh, about it in this sort of uh, theoretical idea. That, oh, yeah, God's presence is here. Um, maybe you'll hear people say, like, oh, yeah, we were worshiping God and God showed up. Uh, things like that make me furious, like God is not already present. Like, can you, you, you know what I mean? Like, I understand the thought behind it, and I'm not saying that these people are sinners when they say things like that, but it, it, it can really lead to this idea that God needs us in order to show up. Like, if we weren't caught up in praise and worship, then God's presence wouldn't be with us. Uh, like, God didn't promise that he was going to be with us always until the very end of the age. Uh, so, do you, so, so I sort of got caught up in this idea of abiding. And so what I want to do is I want to walk you through the scriptural, sort of the scriptural story of God abiding with his people. Okay? Uh, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but when you look at scripture, all scripture is connected by different tissues, different stories. Thank you. Uh, different stories uh, from the very first chapters of the Bible all the way through to the end of the Bible are connected. And there is connective tissue between all stories that carry certain themes continually through scripture. Uh, sometimes they're difficult to identify and sometimes they're not. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to start here. So this is, the, this is how the story starts. God creates the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. You know that, right? Uh, I don't have to go over the creation story. God speaks and all of creation comes into existence. Everything is perfect for a period of time until Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, so Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8, says this. And they heard, this is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I want to point out just a couple of things here. One, uh, Eve doesn't have a name yet. It's the man and the woman. Adam has a name because that name was given to him by God. Adam means from dirt. That literally is what Adam means. So if you know anyone who's named Adam, you can go up to him and be like, you're dirt. Technically correct, though maybe a little bit sassy, uh, but Eve doesn't have her name here yet. That'll come later, and that's important. Second thing I want to point out from this story, what's God doing? He's walking in the garden at the cool of the evening. Uh, I don't know what this looks like. I'm not going to pretend that, that I can explain what it looks like that the almighty God created heaven and earth, walked physically in the garden of Eden in the cool of the evening. Now, there's a couple of questions that pop to mind. Why the cool of the day? Because we've got that, that season time, you know, that, that nice little time when the sun's still up, but it's going down, and you get that cool breeze that comes across. You know the times? Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's, like, for many people, that's the most beautiful time of day. So, so is God walking in that time because that's just the best time to experience his own creation? I don't know these questions. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to care, but I really think like I'm going to ask God some of these questions, sit down with a booklet and be like, all right, God, answer this one and answer this one. Like, I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not, or if I'm just going to be in God's presence. Yeah, I know I'm going to be in God's presence. I'm just going to be crazy and that's it. Like, I'm not actually going to be able to present my list. Like my list, why mosquitoes? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, you think of these questions, they keep you up at night. 
So, so God comes walking. Now, it doesn't say that Adam and Eve were terrified that God is walking in the garden. It says that they flee from his presence because of their sin, because they had been disobedient, which means that they were used to God walking in the garden, which means he did it regularly. It means it was part of his habit. It was part of his ritual that he would walk in creation with Adam and Eve. And so right from the very beginning, you can see that the desire of God's heart was to abide or to dwell with his people. That's what God wants. He wants to abide with us. And so they're walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Um, if you were to, to, to move forward just a couple of verses, you would get to the point where God is doling out the punishments for their sin. And he, he curses the snake first and says, you're going to crawl on your belly for the rest of eternity and eating dust. And then he says to Eve, uh, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of and the snake. And the snake is going to bite your heel and your heel is going to crush its head. And then he lays down a curse to Adam that says, you're going to toil forever. Uh, you're going to have where, where there was no weeds. There's now going to be weeds. You're going to toil. You're going to labor. And eventually you're going to die. That was the curse doled out on Adam. And then in the next couple of verses, Adam named his wife Eve, which literally means mother of the living. Everything is going to die. Everything is going to end. And yet Adam still has hope that Eve is going to be the mother of the living. And so she, he names her Eve. Because in that curse, God made a way for him to be able to abide or dwell with his people. He said that your seed is going to be struck at by the heel of the serpent. By the serpent is going to strike at your seed's heel, but you will be able to crush his head. It was a foreshadowing of the final victory over Satan that Christ had on the cross at Calvary. Moving on. This is Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, uh, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Some translations will say those who curse you I will curse. And in all families of, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what you need to understand about this particular verse, that blessing that is coming is the ability for God to dwell with his people. The blessing here is not how numerous the Israelites will eventually be. The blessing here is not going to be that uh, Abraham's going to have many, many children. That's going to be a subpart of the blessing. But the actual blessing here is that the Messiah was going to come in flesh to his people. That's what this is about. When God came to Abram and said, Abram, you're a, you're a righteous man because of your faith. I'm going to bless you. That blessing is not just arbitrary. It's not just numerical growth, but it is a spiritual promise that the very flesh of God is going to once again reside where he wants to reside. The desire of God's heart is to dwell with his people. We know this because if we continue through this story, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, 
so the story of Exodus, the Israelites come out of the land of Egypt. They sack the land of Egypt on their way out. They carry out livestock, gold, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They get into the wilderness, into the desert. Uh, Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes back down. The Israelites do some funky stuff. That's another story for another time. Um, eventually, they get around to building the tabernacle. This is found in the later half of Exodus. It's then re-explained in the book of Leviticus. But at the very end of Exodus, after God has set up the tab- uh, given them the instructions for the tabernacle, he said, this is the tabernacle. It's going to be a tent. Where, you can, uh, where the priests are going to be able to come in and offer sacrifices to me in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant's going to be, and that's going to be my seat uh, where I'm going to come physically. That's the place where you're going to be able to meet with me. Uh, and after the Israelites set all this up, Scripture tells us that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It says after the Israelites had done everything that God had wanted them to do, then the very physical presence of the Lord, which had been separate from humanity for most of the book of, sorry, all the book of Genesis and most of the book of Exodus, now the physical manifestation of the presence of the Lord was going to dwell in the tabernacle, but there was still a problem. The problem was only one man once a year could go into the presence of God. That was the the difficulty. In fact, on just a couple of days ago in Israel, they celebrated the holiday of Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. And it was on the Day of Atonement that only one man once a year could go into the presence of God to make uh, reparations for the sins of Israel, to make sacrifices for the sins of Israel, so that the people could be forgiven for another year. So can you see the problem? One man once a year can go into the presence of God. What does God want to do? Come on. He wants to abide. He wants to dwell. While that is dwelling, it's still not the fullness of his promise, is it? It's still not the fullness of day in, day out, you and I in presence together. And so we're getting closer to what's supposed to happen, uh, but we're not there yet. You continue the story and you go to Second Chronicles, you get a guy called Solomon. Solomon is famous. He's a very wise person. You might have heard stories of his wisdom. He built the temple of the Lord. Uh, He also built his own palace. Again, side stories. We'll get there another day, not for today. Uh, He did some stuff wrong, but this is one of the things that he did good. He took seven years and he built the temple in Jerusalem. This was a magnificent temple. It was overlaid in gold. It uses the finest wood that he had to import from other countries in order to get uh, this wood in. Uh, He had golden jewels. He remade all of the temple objects so that they were again sanctified for the worship of the Lord. And after Solomon prayed the temple dedication, this is what happened. So this is 2 Chronicles chapter 5, starting in verse 13. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in union, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, uh, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. It goes on to say that the cloud then was so thick that the priests had to stop offering their sacrifices and had to stop doing their priestly duties because the presence of the Lord was so thick that they couldn't see a couple of feet in front of their faces because the presence of the Lord was so there and so present that they couldn't do anything else other than just worship him in their spirits. 
Don't you just wish that every now and then in our church services, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so thick that we actually couldn't do anything other than just sit in our spirits and worship Him. It's been a really long time for me since that's happened. That's a confession. But again, it's not the fullness of the promise of God. It's still, even though it's now no longer a ramshackle tent in the middle of the desert, but a glorious house, a glorious temple, literally on top of the tallest hill in the region. Even though for the next few years, people would be continually offering sacrifices to God in that temple, it still wasn't the completion of what God wanted. Here it is, so verse 14 so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. In Ezekiel 37, 27, we read this. So to give you a back note, uh, Ezekiel is a prophet who's been prophesying very heavily against uh, people of other religions, people who are degrading the name of God and people who are going against God and God comes to him and he says look if you can get the nation of Israel back to the right worship this is the promise this is what's going to happen my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore this is a twofold prophecy Uh, when you look at prophecy in in the Old Testament very often it's doing two things. It's foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is telling a truth of now. And foretelling uh, uh, is the truth of now. And foretelling is telling something that's going to occur in the future. And so speaking forth what's happening right now, God says to Ezekiel, if right now you can get Israel back to where they're supposed to go and reinstitute temple worship where it's supposed to be, I will once again be in your midst. But it's also foretelling of something that's going to happen in the future that when the nations of the world come to Jesus, we will actually be able to abide and dwell in the presence of God forevermore. I know I don't have you quite convinced. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, this is the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, little side note, temple worship is happening here. In case you're wondering, people are worshipping in the temple at this point. However, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it for their own ends. So this is what God says. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods, 
to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Here's what he's saying. It's not just enough to offer sacrifices to me. Your behavior has to reflect your salvation. Now, some people don't like this because it sounds like I'm talking about works-based salvation, and I'm not. But what I'm saying is you don't have to work to be saved, but once you are saved, your heart and mind should change to reflect the state of salvation that you're in. And those who are sojourners, which means foreigners or aliens, some people would call them immigrants, you need to be kind to them. Those that are fatherless, those who are orphans, you need to be kind to orphans. And those who have lost people in their lives, people who are widowed, you need to be kind to them. If you're not, then you're not being reflective of what a Christian is. It's not just about this state of salvation getting us into a church, sitting down for an hour, having me yell at you for 45 minutes, and then moving on for the rest of the week. It's what are you doing 9 to 5, Monday through Saturday, with your life? Are you actually reflecting the gospel of Christ that is your salvation? And he warns these people that if you're just doing this reckless stuff, that you're not in God's grace. You're not in his mercy. You're just doing it for yourself. He says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. There are people who claim to be Christians who don't act like it throughout the rest of the week, but then come into the church and sit here on a Sunday morning. They know when to raise their hands. They know when to clap along. They know when to say amen, but they're not Christians. These people come into the church. These people are deceptive. And listen to me. They can and do and will lead you astray. That's the dangerous part. Because they know the right things to say. They know the right things to do. But they have no regenerative nature in their hearts. God says they stand at the temple gates. After making sacrifices to Baal, they stand in the temple gates and say, God delivers us. People rag on the Israelites a lot. They, they make fun of the Israelites for the amount of times that they uh, come to God and then turn their back on God and then go back to God. The Christian church is the same. People do this. He finishes in verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? It almost sounds familiar. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. When Christ went into the temple and he saw the money changers in the temple and he said, my father's house has become a den of robbers because they have replaced prayer with changing money. What's the attitude of your heart? Gosh, I got a bit to go. Here we go. Oh, no, I'm fine. And here's how it narrows down. In the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, in verse 14, it says this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He said it's very simple, guys. 
at the beginning of the book of John. I don't have this in your notes. It should have been in your notes, but I forgot to put it in. The opening of the book of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It goes on in a little bit that nothing was created without him, and that everything in creation was created for his sake, for his glory, for his purpose, and for his glory. Paraphrasing. We read that as well in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. Everything in creation was made for the glory of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. In Greek, the word word is the word logos. Logos was invented by Greek philosophers before the time of Christ. It was a, a way of describing how everything came into existence. Essentially what the Greeks said is that there had to have been, in case, in case you're wondering, a little bit of philosophy here. Just, just like hand over here and say, well, let's talk about philosophy just one second. Uh, this is where it goes off the rails. These are not in my notes, but it's, it's, this is the rails that I warned you about. In philosophy, the Greeks came up with this concept that all of creation had to have been made of the same substance. Do you know what they called it? Atoms. Does it sound familiar? And what they said is that while everything was made up of these, these atoms, they had to undergo change because, you know, water, if we boil water, it turns into gas and it undergoes change. So, so the, the, the same basic thing had to have been at the basis of, of everything. And so we call those things atoms. But then they said that we, we can't logically explain why everything in existence came into existence. Right? We, can't, we can't explain to you how an apple tree just grew. And so what they said is that they were, they were trying to move away from the idea that all the different gods created things. So they were trying to move away from Zeus and Hera and Apollo and all of these, these pantheon of gods. They were trying to move away from that as explaining how the universe came into being. But they couldn't explain it, so they said this. There has to be something that we're going to call the logos. The reason that everything in existence is in existence. We don't know what it is. We're not going to define it any more than that. But in all of our writings, when we say, why is everything in existence, we're going to use the word logos to describe it. And then a few years later, a guy called John comes along and says, the logos is God. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, and everything came into being through the logos. That's what it means. And then in verse 14, what John says is this. The Logos, the reason that the universe is here, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then we skip forward. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And suddenly you've got a bunch of apostles who are starting this church. And then you get to the book of Revelation, which is also written by John. On the island of Patmos. And the first 20 odd chapters of Revelation are filled with some very startling images and some very horrific things happening to the human population. And then he gets into Revelation 21. And he says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
What did God want in the Garden of Eden? To dwell and to abide with his creation. That's what I've shown you, that throughout the entire scripture, one of the linking tissues from start to finish is that God desires to dwell with his people. That's the end game. The primary reason for everything in existence is the glory of God. But one of the things that God wants so that he can be glorified is to dwell with his people. And everything that God has done secondary to his glory has been so that you and I could spend eternity with him, dwelling with him. Revelation will go on to say that there will be no sun or moon or stars in the new Jerusalem for the light of God himself will be our light. That God will be physically with us for eternity. That we will be in his presence. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Everything that's passing away is the direct result of the curse from Genesis chapter 3. So when when God said to the snake, you're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust for the rest of your days. When he said to the woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth and the, the serpent's going to strike your heel and you're going to crush its head. And when he said to Adam that you're going to have enmity between you and your wife and arguments with you and your wife and you're going to toil in the ground and have weeds and not have anything good come out and struggle and struggle. And all of that is gone. Because God himself will be with his people. And we will be his. And he will be ours. And we will abide in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? If you learn nothing from this week, and I want to end just on this thought. If you learn nothing from me standing up here and yelling at you for 30 minutes, I want you to understand this. The end game for every person who claims Christianity is that you abide in the presence of the Lord forever. Don't have to wait at your death for that to happen. When Christ died on the cross, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, ripped in two. That veil was what separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was what separated everyone from going into the presence of God. When that ripped, it was symbolic that you and I, as Christians, believers in Christ, can enter into the presence of God Whenever, wherever, however. We no longer have to wait for one man once a year to enter the presence of God. You and I can do it on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. Every minute of our lives can be spent in the presence of God. And we spend it in the presence of God because the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. And as John said in his letter, we abide in him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence. I pray, Lord God, that each one of us here abides in you every minute of every day. Lord, we thank you for the promises of Scripture. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are our God and we are your people. I pray that you give us safe traveling mercies until we meet here again. We pray these things in your son's precious name.
in the name of Jesus. Amen.